Hello, thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to be reading from the pack. What I'm going to do is uh, share some from the introduction and from a few chapters. I'm very passionate about this book, The Pack. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with it. How many are familiar with The Pack? Okay, great. Um, it was a New York Times bestseller. It, the authors have been on Oprah, um, a lot of the morning shows, and the story is about three doctors who made a pact to finish their high school education and become doctors. And I want to read the introduction, and I'm going to read uh, a little bit about three educators, and so I, I thought it would be significant in this setting because, you know, there's always a backstory to the story, and there are three educators who are very uh, instrumental in making this story happen and in the lives of these three young men. And then I'm going to read um, a, an excerpt from Dr. Remet Hunt's uh, one of his chapters, because he was one of the young men that struggled a lot. He had, uh, he got in more trouble than the other two. Really, the uh, there was one positive um, young man that was the strong one, and uh, Remek was one of the two that always got in trouble. And you know, if you ever work with kids, you know. It's just encouraging to know that, you know, they can be turned around. And my brother was a similar per type student, and that's why I'm showing part of his film today, because he did turn his life around. Um, and then I'm going to, um, you know, show a bit from my brother's uh, indie film. Here are some of the reviews from the pack. Will inspire and entertain. The pack is the impressive story of three teenage boys from Newark, New Jersey, who became outstanding men. That was from Essence Magazine. Starkly honest, a dramatic firsthand narrative de detailing how each doctor managed to rise above the ills of city life, violence, drugs, and poverty to achieve what once seemed like a far-fetched dream. That was from the Newark Star Legend newspaper. It is probably the most important book for African-American families that has been written since the protest era. Get the pack. It, it just may change a teen's future. And that was from the uh, Chicago Sun-Times. We treat them in hospitals every day. They are young brothers, often drug dealers, gang members, or small-time criminals who show up shot, stabbed, or beaten after a hustle gone bad. To some of our medical colleagues, they are just nameless thugs per perpetuating crime and death in neighborhoods that have seen far too, too much of those things. But when we look into the faces, we see ourselves as teenagers. We see our friends. We see what we easily could have become as young adults. And we're reminded of the thin line that separates us three, 29-year-old doctors, an emergency room physician, an internist, and a dentist from these patients whose lives are filled with danger and desperation. We grew up poor. We grew up in poor, broken homes in New Jersey neighborhood, in a New Jersey neighborhood, riddled with crime, drugs, and death, and came of age in the 80s at the height of, the, of a crack epidemic that ravaged communities like ours throughout the nation. There were no doctors or lawyers walking the streets of our communities. Where we lived, hustlers reigned, and it was easy to follow their example. Two of us landed in juvenile detention centers before our 18th birthdays. 
but inspired early by caring and imaginative role models, one of us in childhood latched on to a dream of becoming a dentist, steered clear of trouble, and in his senior year of high school, persuaded his two best friends to apply to college, a college program for minority students and interested in becoming doctors. We knew we'd never survive if we went along, after it alone. So we made a pact. We'd help one another through no, matter, through no matter what. In college, the three of us stuck together to survive and thrive in a world that was different from anything we had ever known. We provided one another with the kind of positive peer pressure. When one of us finished his college application, the other two rushed to send theirs out. When we participated in a six-week remedial program at Sutton Hall University the summer before our freshman year, each of us felt pressure to perform well because we knew that, that our friends would excel and we didn't want to embarrass ourselves or lag behind. When one of us made a, an A on a test, the others strived to make A's too. We studied together. We worked summer jobs together. We party together, and we learn to solve our problems together. We are doctors today because of the positive influences that we had on one another. The lives of most impressionable young people are defined by their friends, whether they are black, white, Hispanic, or Asian. Whether they are rich, poor, middle class, whether they live in city, suburb, or the country. Among boys particularly, there seems to be some macho code that says to gain respect, you have to pr prove that you're bad. We know firsthand that the wrong friends can lead you into trouble, but even more, they can tear down hopes, dreams, and possibilities. We know too that the right friends inspire you, pull you through, rise with you, each of us experienced friendships that could have destroyed our lives. We suspect that many of the young brothers that we treat every day in our hospitals are entangled with such friendships that require them to prove their toughness and manhood daily, even at the risk of losing their own lives. The three of us are blessed. We found in one another a friendship that works in a powerful way a friendship that helped three vulnerable boys grow into successful men, a friendship that ultimately helped save our lives. But it wasn't always easy. There were times when one of us was ready to give up and times when we, had, when we made bad decisions. Some of that is ugly and difficult to admit. And we suffered pain and other consequences. But we, had, but we have laid it all out here nonetheless. We did this because we hope that our story will inspire others so that even those young people who feel trapped by their circumstances or are pulled by peer pressure in the wrong direction might look for a way out, not through drugs, alcohol, crime, or dares, but through the power of friendship. And within our story are many others of mentors, friends, relatives, and even strangers we met along the way whose goodwill and good deeds have made a difference in our lives. We hope our story will demonstrate that anyone with enough compassion has the power to transform and redirect someone else's troubled life. If we have succeeded at all in helping to even to turn even a single life around, or in opening a window of hope, then this book is well worth the eff our effort. So that's the introduction. And uh, one of the things that happened is that one of the doctor's sister uh, died of AIDS, and he, she actually came into the emergency room when he was working as a doctor, and he shares that as well. So they share a lot of very personal things. And this, they also have a, um, a juvenile book called We Beat the Street, and it's the same story, but it's kind of like for juveniles. And it's really neat if you have, if you know anyone that might need to get that 
you know, uh, at that age because it, they, they really break it down and set, you know, a specific and give little, you know, you know, give you little um, excerpts on the side about, you know, the things they learned, a little lesson kind of um, in each chapter. So this one is um, telling you about George uh, Jenkins, Dr. George Jenkins' um, uh, teacher that, that inspired him. And this is one of the educators that I'm referring to in the story. Miss Johnson had lived in Newark since she was four years old. She attended public schools and followed her father's trail into teaching. Once she began teaching, she, always, she was always taking classes somewhere, a drama class here, a literature class there, and she brought what she learned to her classroom. When I met her, Miss Johnson was in her mid-40s, single with no children. I guess her students filled that space in her heart because she nurtured us like a mother. She told us that college was not just an option, but the next step to advancement, like the 13th grade. Everybody has a chance to go to college. She said, never say you can't go because of money. Get that degree. You must get that degree. She regularly got discount tickets for us to attend, attend Broadway plays. She asked parents to play, pay for the tickets, and we rode to New York City on a bus that she usually rented herself. And we did not dare dress tacky. Miss Johnson required the girls to wear dresses and stockings and the guys to wear nice slacks and shirts. She also secured the scripts of popular plays, assigned roles, and rehearsed uh, so that we could perform for the entire school. When we put on a production of Annie, I played Daddy Warbucks. Miss Johnson introduced us to algebra and Shakespeare with books written for kids. We even formed a Shakespeare club that met on Tuesdays after school. I was elected president. We read and discussed Shakespeare at our meetings. One morning, the club voted on our official uniform, burgundy sweaters with the group's name, the Shakespeare Club, embroidered over the pocket. Once, we wore our sweaters to a concert at Symphony Hall. Several people in the audience asked Ms. Johnson which private school we attended. She smiled, held her head high, and announced we, with great pride that we were from Louise A. Spencer Elementary, a public school in the Central Ward, which practically everyone in Newark considered the ghetto. Our teacher loved to travel, and she always sent us postcards and bought souvenirs from wherever she went. Some days, she pulled the globe from the corner of the classroom, gathered us around her, and told us stories about places that before were just spots on a map to us. Noise didn't bother Miss Johnson as long as children were engaging in learning. She stayed with us after school to dye eggs for Easter, make gingerbread men for Christmas, or bake just for because. Miss Johnson retired from Newark Public Schools in 1993 after 32 years of teaching and moved to Johnsonville, West Virginia, a tiny small, a tiny town named after her great grandfather. I lost touch with her when I left Spencer and for years didn't know where she'd gone. But I never forgot her. She made a lanky, mild-mannered kid growing up in a tough place feel smart and special. She also made me curious about the world I had yet to, to see. That was a curiosity the dentist saw in me the day I showed up at his office to get braces. And this, this is the one that became a dentist. Um, another uh, educator is, uh, anyone ever heard of uh, uh, Jawanza Kunjufa? He was another educator that was instrumental uh, in the backstory. This one is, uh, and uh, this one is also telling you about Carla Dixon, who was the 
educator at the university that directed their lives and they um in this chapter they call it's called Earth Angel. And Sam is telling this story. Um Dr. Sam D- Samson Davis. It was the fall of 1990 and Carla Dixon was attending the Black Issues Conference in New Brunswick when she heard an author would change, she heard an author who would change her life and ours. Jawanza Kanjufu, an education consultant, was discussing his series of books, The Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys. And I personally met him when my brother was like around in the third grade in a little church basement. And he was doing that first print, I think it was probably the first couple of printings of uh, countering the conspiracy to destroy black boys. And it sounds real paranoid, but that book is in its 20th printing. It's just a little paperback book um, that he was going around. He has a publishing company and he's printed. And I, I've met him in Atlanta. He does stuff with teachers. Uh, you, you see him quoted in magazines now. I mean, he's become very well known. He described how smart, energetic, and hopeful black boys in our school system so inadequately, inadequately prepare to educate them that the boys began to lose interest as early as the fourth grade and are often lost to the streets by high school. He proposed mentoring as a solution and asked the men in the audience to stand. He admonished them to go back to their communities and become mentors to the black boys who needed them. Carla was so moved by the workshop that when he finished talking, she headed to the booth where he was going, where he was signing his books. The crowd was so thick that no more than five feet tall. She could not even hope to catch a glimpse of him. So she waited at the end of the line and prayed that his books wouldn't sell out before she made it to the table. As Carla tells it, she lost track of time. I'm going to skip that. Um, um, he, so once he signed the book, he says, Carla, go out and save our black boys. That's what he signed the book saying to her. The following spring, George Remek and I showed up in her office for an interview. She says that when she met George, she could not she could tell that he really wanted to be a dentist and that Remek and I were more skeptical. She could see that Remek could wanted to trust her and wanted to come to Seton Hall. Seton Hall, am I pronouncing that right? Who was that? Seton Hall, I'm sorry. Uh Seton Hall. But uh though he didn't really know why. She knew right away that I carried a lot of weight, and she declares I took over interviewing her. But Carla says she liked us right away and immediately saw us as a unit. She feared that if one of us dropped out of the program, she risked losing all three of us. She vowed not to let that happen, and she became our angel, guiding protecting and pushing us as we travel blindly from the comforts and dangers of our old world through the challenging new ones at Seton Hall. Carla planned every detail of student life in the pre-medical, pre-dental plus program, right down to who will be roommates with whom. Her job was to figure out the weaknesses of the students in the program, whether those weaknesses were academic, social, environmental, or personal, and find a way to help us strengthen them. Her first move was to assign Redmanek and me as roommates for the summer program and to place George in the same suite but with, other, with another roommate across the hall. She says she didn't want our reservations to influence George. She figured if she could keep George excited, he would work on us. Several times over the years at Seton Hall, I received a grade less than I thought I deserved in a class and complained to Carla. She wouldn't allow me to get by with complaining. 
she persuaded me to make an appointment to talk to the professor to try to understand why I had, why I had received the lower mark and to make a case for myself. More times than not, her advice worked. I, I immediately began, feel, oh, he's telling about one night during my freshman year, I received a frantic call from home. The family was gathered at University Hospital in Newark. My oldest brother, Kenny, had been beaten in the head with some type of heavy blunt object. I heard it was a golf club during a fight. He had lost a lot of blood and was unconscious and would probably not survive. I rushed to his bedside, and I was devastated by what I saw. He met, his bandaged head was hugely swollen, and his face was black and blue. He lay so still, and he looked frozen. I couldn't stand seeing him that way, and I rushed out of the room. I had been angry at Kenny for years for drinking so much and causing such a disturbance at Mom's house, but he was my brother. I didn't want him to die. I immediately began to feel guilty about being in college. None of my brothers or sisters had been given such an opportunity. What was so special about me? I might not have been able I may I might not have been able to prevent the fight that left my brother nearly dead, but if I had been working instead of going to college, I would at least have been helping moms out with the bills. I was the one who had helped, he, who, who had held our family together. My rep in the neighborhood had helped to protect them. When I left for college, moms began collecting discarded aluminum cans off the sidewalks and streets during her 4 a.m. street cleanings to sell to a company that made money by recycling. This just proved my point and made me feel worse. She sent me her small profits, which made me feel special and loved, but also unworthy. With Kenny's injury, all those feelings of guilt and responsibility and worthlessness came rushing back. The next morning, I went to see Carla. Listen, you can't feel like you're the reason this happened, she told me. You had no control over this. You can't live your life forever telling, trying to take care of your family and monitoring your brothers and sisters. She helped me plow through the pain to see how it was best for me to stay in college and complete my education. Ultimately, Kenny, Kenny recovered. Carla understood that the students in her program faced many distractions outside of school and needed more than just academic involvement, academic enrichment to survive the academic world. Whatever the need, she tried to meet it or find someone who could. At the end of our freshman year, Carla refused to allow Remick, George, and me to go back to our neighborhoods for the summer. She did not want us to return to the influences of old friends or other dangers there. I had shown her a letter that one of the guys who had taken part in the armed robbery wrote, from, wrote me from jail. He accused me of ratting them out, and he threatened to get me. She arranged for us to live and work on campus during the summer. So that's an example of how her, her role um, and then let me read some from uh, Remek um, called Summer Odyssey, Dr. Remek Hunt. I was, ex I was exci as excited as a kid going away to summer camp for the first time when Sam, George, and I left home for Seton Hall in June before our freshman year. We were among the 10 students accepted into the pre-medical, pre-dental Plus program that year. All of us had been recruited from urban New Jersey high schools, and we had to spend six weeks of the summer on campus to get some remediation. The goal was to bring us up to par academically with students who would be sitting next to us in, the, in class in the fall. For the first time in years, life will be stable for me with no more moving from one relative to house to another 
And that felt good. I was finally over my disappointment and I would, that I wouldn't be able to attend Howard University with Ahi and Hassan. Ahi was a student activist at, the uni at University High, respected by students and teachers, and he, also, he was also one of my closest friends. Okay, um, this is um, Dr. Hunt. In uh, the name of this chapter is A Different World, and I'll just read a few minutes. So if you can stop me at, you know, maybe about five more minutes. Thank you. My freshman year at Seton Hall was like living in a foreign country. There were where few people looked like me or spoke my language, and the trouble started right away. I had been on campus just half a semester. He, he's the one that always got in trouble. <laughs> When I invited my stepbrother, Michael, to visit me, I called him and my stepbrother, but he was really the son of my father's long-time term time girlfriend. Michael had dropped out of high school and, that and I hoped that exposing him to college would encourage him to return. In elementary school, he had been a smart kid who made straight A's, wore glasses, and loved to read. The kids at school and even in his family had called him a nerd and teased him mercilessly, mercilessly. I teased him too, but as we got older, I felt bad for him. I knew he was a good guy, and I could see the teasing was really bothering him. His grades fell. He began hanging out with troublemakers and eventually just stopped going to school. He began working out at the gym and tra transformed his once scrawny frame into muscles and mass. Before long, he was getting into trouble, too. He accepted an invitation to visit me at Seton Hall, and he brought one of his cousins and another friend with him. They ran wild on campus all day. About 1 o'clock in the morning, they were still at it, making too much noise in Bowdoin Hall, the freshman dormitory where I lived. I was afraid they would get us all into trouble, so I confronted Michael in the hall outside my room in, on the third floor. He accused me of making a big deal out of nothing. My temper blew, and he began arguing loud. we began arguing loudly as though we were about to fight. A crowd of students gathered around us ready to watch some kind of showdown. All of a sudden, I looked up, and I saw a bunch of white faces staring at us. I felt ashamed. We were a spectacle confirming white folks' worst stereotypes. Most of my encounters with white folks at that point in my life had been negative. White sales clerks following me through stores on shopping trips to the mall, white police officers stopping and harassing me on the streets of my neighborhood, white passengers looking on, holding on to their purses a bit tighter on the train when I, pa when I passed them. To the average white stranger, I was an instant security threat a thug, an object to be loathed or feared, not a human being with a heart and dreams and family and fears. I resented the stereotype, but instead of calming myself down, I turned my anger on the crowd. Why don't y'all get away from here, I shouted. We're just having a little argument. This ain't nothing for y'all. We ain't no spectacle. The crowd dispersed for two white guys who continued to stare. One of them wore an arrogant smirk. Y'all didn't hear what I said. I yelled, I said, leave. And one with the smirk stood his ground. Well, we live here on this floor, too. We pay tuition, too. And we don't have to go anywhere. My anger rose another notch. What did you say, I asked, feigning disbelief, staring him dead in his eyes, trying to intimidate him to back down? He repeated himself full of that righteous white boy attitude. My stepbrother and his boys were looking at me as if to say, man, this white boy is about to get the best of you. What you going to do? If I did nothing, I looked like a punk. I walked over to him and stood chest to chest. Look, I'm counting to three, and if you don't leave, you're going to wish you had. The white boy chuckled a bit in my face and turned to his partner. He's trying to threaten us. Huh, like I really care. I couldn't believe this white boy was disrespecting me. Mind you, he was right. 
I had as much, he had as much claim to hallway spaces as I had. And I had no business ordering him to his room. But my mind was too filled with anger to accept a rational thought. And all I saw was an arrogant white boy trying to put me in my place. I slowly counted to three. The white boy didn't move. With a, with a strength that belied my small frame, I grabbed him simultaneously by his collar and his crotch, raised him over my head, and dropped him. He slammed to the floor head first, his neck bent in an odd way, and his body fell limp. Fear replaced my anger. For a few seconds, all I could hear was my heart thumping wildly. I thought I had paralyzed or killed the guy. Suddenly he moved. I exhaled. But with my stepbrother and his boys watching, I couldn't drop my tough guy demeanor. Now get up, I commanded. The boy was silent. His friend helped him up, and he limped away. I turned and walked past my stepbrother and his boys to my room. I fell on my bed. Sam was out on that night, and George was across the hall in his suite. I lay in my room alone, thinking to myself over and over, Man, what have you done? What have you gotten yourself into now? About 4 a.m., loud banging on the door of my suite broke my sleep. Orange, South Orange police, a voice yelled from the other side. They had come for me. I resigned myself to what was sure to happen next. The white boy would press charges against me. I would get kicked out of school. And for what? Because the white boy didn't leave when I told him to leave? I was wrong, and I knew it. I just hadn't been thinking about the consequences. On the streets where I grew up, you didn't worry about consequences. If someone disrespected you, you beat his ass, period. From the time I was a little boy, my mother had warned me never to come home crying because I was scared to fight back when someone picked on me. If you don't beat his ass, don't come home crying, she said. If you do, I'm going to beat your ass. Either way, you got an ass whooping. So who do you want it from? I opened the door to my suite and followed the officers to a small room downstairs. The dormitory director was there with the boy and his parents. Is this the guy, the police officer asked, pointing at me? Yes, that's him, the boy responded. Do you want to press charges, the officer asked, seeming much too eager. No. We don't want to press charges against him, she said softly. That's okay. I looked at her with, my, with eyes that said, you don't? I feared that's what they had come to do. Maybe she knew I would get kicked out of school if she pressed charges, and she didn't want to ruin my life. I don't know. But now the officer was telling me I was free to go. I wanted to thank her, but I was too shocked to speak. Her decision didn't end the matter, though. Because the incident had occurred on campus, I was summoned to, appear, summoned to appear before a board of university administrators who would decide my fate. The next day, my two white sweetmates approached me. Sam and I had been cordial to them, but mostly kept our distance. They said they had heard what happened and wanted to know if there was anything they could do to help. One of them said his father was a, a lawyer and could represent me if I needed help. I thanked him for such a kind gesture, but I really didn't need an attorney. On the day of the hearing, I walked into the room, and about a half dozen administrators, mostly white men, sat across a long wooden table. One of them, a priest with deep blue eyes and white hair, looked particularly sinister. Sin sinister. The white boy was there but his foot, with his foot in a cast. His foot had slammed to the ground with such force that a bone had snapped. I was sure the administrators, after taking one look at him, would kick me out of school no matter what I had to say. They called me to testify. I explained what had happened and apologized to the guy I had hurt. I truly regretted that I, what I had done. I presented... Present, Supportive letters and from one of I presented supportive letters from one of my professors and Carla Dixon, who pleaded for my mercy on my behalf. 
the administrators conferred with one another and announced their decision. They will give me another chance. They put me on probation for six months. If I got into any more trouble during that time, I would be expelled immediately. Silently, I thank God. The mother's decision not to press charges against me had probably influenced the board. It challenged the deep distrust I felt at that time toward white folks. How could I continue to, to feel that way when his mother, who had every right to be angry that I had hurt her son, choose compassion instead, instead? And when the administrators, who would have been justified in kicking me out, chose mercy? And when my suite mates, whom I had avoided most of the time, offered her their help, I was like, wow, there are really some cool white people in the world. So those are, um, that's just an example of some of the very dramatic story in the pack. <laughs> and I wanted to show a little of the film and um, my brother, tell, a little, tell you a little bit about my brother. <laughs> a little bit about my brother who struggled in high school um, I'm from a family of nine children, so they were the last, like a separate family almost. And so I was an adult by the time he was in high school, and my neighborhood had deteriorated, my former neighborhood, so I had moved away. And I um, brought, I had to adopt him and uh, raise, help raise him when he was in high school. And when I got him, uh, my sister and I uh, were roommates, and when we got him, he was, uh, he had straight Fs, and he was a junior in high school. And I believe that the pack worked with them. It was, there were two brothers, two teenage brothers, and also I had a nephew. And it's like they stuck together, and um, he, you know, pretty much, you may as well say he pretty much was dropped out, had dropped out, but he decided to, you know, come live with us and go back, you know, go back to school, cause, mostly because he wanted to get on the basketball team. <laughs> but he, uh, he, he ended up uh, graduating uh, the, a year after his class, his, cla his uh, graduating class. But I think because the younger brother was still in school and then there was a nephew that he decided to stick it out and continue his education. But I don't think if that brother hadn't been there, he would not have gone. I don't think he would have gone back that last year. And, and also we had to pay him at the end because he was just, it was just like he was depressed or something. And he, we had to end up, you know, by his senior year, we had to like pay him $15 a week just to go to school. <laughs> but it worked. And um, he went to um, um, community college and then he uh, applied to Georgia State, and he has a degree in, um, was it communication or something, but he's um, a filmmaker now. So this is just his, this is his first movie, and I just wanted to show you a little bit. And if you know anybody that can <laughs> produce this, uh, they want to back his movie, let us know. <laughs> People trying to tell us on YouTube. Building up an entertainment center. You must be doing real good. No, man, I can't wait to see that big screen. Me either. Man, I had that job, but somehow I fell one step short. A degree don't do it all they say it do. Where'd it start at? Not what they said it was going to be when I started college. Mm, anyway. You see that girl that delivered Grandpa his food the other day? No, I wasn't really paying attention. I just missed that 759. I'm sorry, Force won't even make this camp for you. That man ain't got to the job yet. Oh, that's how it's going. Look at here. You boys are getting too old for your Grandpa and I to keep taking care of you. Don't you want to open up and spread your wings? What you grinding me into is, don't you want to be independent? No, I'm not really. Okay, and don't you ever want to have a lady friend? I'm going to have. Love music? I don't need that. 
Sometimes, don't you just have to say the F word or the S word? I want to say the F word and the S word all the time. Me too. But when you stand with somebody, you already know it's certain things you got to give up. What about those friends you grew up with? I'm sure they've gotten their own places by now. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, there's that one dude who didn't move out there. He was, what, like 45? Mm-hmm. And I know somebody who uh, never moved out. And after his parents died, he got the house. And no, no, no. Then there was, uh, what's his name? Yeah, that's right. His parents tried to kick him out. <laughs> he ended up taking them to court. And they ended up owing him some money. <laughs> I 
you with, with words like a song. Telling you, man, they was in there dancing. Come on. No, wait, wait. No, I got a better idea. They want to play tricks on us, huh? We're gonna take a little time. Come on, it's a trick of our own. <laughs> 